I like helping other people. I like setting other people up for success. The number one role of any leader, you're fundamentally there not to block or barricade or interfere. You're there to set others up for success. I deeply enjoyed spending an hour in conversation with Joseph Klein, a leader and mentor who has woven in and out of my personal journey in hospitality for well over two decades. Currently, Joseph is the general manager at the Sheridan Montreal Airport Hotel with a history of managing many great Canadian properties, including the Algonquin Hotel, Deerhurst Resort, and the Montreal Marriott Chateau Champlain. He is so incredibly strong in the realm of people-focused learning and training, and his unique how-can-we-all-win approach infects the teams that he leads. Our discussion covers a lot of ground, from his early days as a busboy at the Weston Bonaventure, to the influences that Max Ward had on his view of creating luxury offerings. We talk about the value of foundational skills, flexibility, situational thinking, and why being able to both make and take a decision is critical for success. Throughout it all, he consistently showcased how much fun a life in hospitality can truly be. As always, when talking with Joseph, I felt seen and valued, but I'm getting ahead of myself. And it's better when Joseph explains it anyways. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Joseph Klein. My name is William Murray. Welcome to the Service Center. I want to thank you for spending some time with me today. You and I connected well over 20 years ago, and I'm not sure if you remember the first time that we connected, um, but you were back in Lake Louise is the director of operations at the Fairmont Lake Louise. And we've crossed paths a number of times since then. It's been far too long. And over those last couple of decades, you've served in the role of general manager in, in some very iconic properties. You were at the Fairmont Algonquin, you were at Deerhurst Resort, and then you, you returned home as general manager of the Montreal Marriott Chateau Champlain, and now at the Sheridan Montreal Airport Hotel. And so you kind of have come full circle back to where your story began, because you're a son of Montreal, right? Yes, I am. Son of Montreal, uh, hospitality, I guess. Uh, I blame my parents with, uh, with a lot of gratitude. Um, I fell into hotels back in, uh, in I'm going to say, 77, 78. Uh, my dad knew someone at the then uh, Western Bonaventure here in Montreal. And I was looking for just a summer job. Uh, he got me a quick interview. I ended up being a busboy in the restaurant. And quite literally, I just, I, I fell in love. I fell in love with the heart of the house before anything else, which was kind of interesting. I fell in love with uh, the activity, the bustle, the hustle, not really knowing the mechanics, but very quickly gaining insight into the mechanics. I would say to you, William, Within six months, I had gone from a busboy in the restaurant to a junior waiter in room service. And that's a whole other series of stories, what you see in room service, to very quickly becoming a front desk agent, looking for more responsibility, more activity. Uh, literally, the rest is history. I, I stayed there for four years, ended up being a night manager, front office uh, supervisor, uh, Gosh, what else did I do? Ended up as number two in the restaurants. This is just as uh, the industry went through a major crunch. Gosh, this would be like 81, if I'm not mistaken. Went from, I don't know, I, I think it was uh, one, two, three, six managers, four hostesses to 
two managers, no hostesses. The days of restructuring of a bygone era. I remember it was it was, it was a blast. It, it, you worked until you dropped, and when you dropped, you got back up again. You worked some more. Now, now let me. Did you do that right after high school? Because you you graduated uh, Father McDonald Comprehensive, right? Father McDonald. Oh my God, you did your homework. That goes way back. And then I went into uh, John Abbott College. I was studying urban planning. I wanted to be a city designer. And then I did a co-op in uh, a visit to Cornwall, Ontario, and uh, said, no, I cannot sit at a drafting table and draw a sewer system for the rest of my life. Uh, I took a sabbatical. I, uh, I worked for an oil company. I uh, took a great trip down to California with a good, good, good friend, who I think has now uh, passed on, and uh, literally just realized that I don't want to be structured by any one place. I need to find an environment that gives me some flexibility, uh, some some variety. And uh, quite literally, uh, upon reflection over the last many, many years, it's a shame that our counselors of the day didn't have a respect for, a comfort with, an understanding of what hospitality, the grand, not just hotel, but hospitality, the grand picture, was really all about. I, I think that really only came to the forefront mid-80s that we started to really see this as, well, this is a great career opportunity, say the counselors of the day. And uh, yeah, uh, fell into hotels. Uh, hotels led to airlines. Uh, airlines led back to hotels and uh, haven't looked back since. Now, I, I just want to stick with those early crazy four years um, because I'm always interested at the beginning of somebody's journey, at the beginning of the path, um, I find that there's a resonance that people feel with something that works for them. So you either feel a harmony with something or a disharmony with something and it pushes you away. Um, and then in those early formative years, there's a couple of things that really grab you and say, this is for me. This is where I belong. Um, what during those formative years grabbed you kind of by the cuffs or the collar and said, this is, this is where I should be? Two things, um, and it's an excellent question, William. Uh, the first thing was this opportunity, or, or not by, by uh, I, I wasn't thinking about it, but from the first few days as a bus person, I remember just connecting with these veteran uh, waitresses who had seen it all and just being able to make contact with them in a fashion that was a bit more personal they, they seemed to, uh, lack of a better term, warm up and had a great relationship in a very quick, short period of time. You know, when you get feedback saying, we really, I like coming to work when you're here, Joseph, because I know things are going to get done. And yet all I'm doing is what's normal or what, what would have been uh, taken for granted uh, by me or by others. This, this connectivity or this ability to deal with a customer as much as a colleague, a staff member was just fun. It was like, oh, wow, this is great. This is exciting. I enjoy this. I want to stay here for a while. The second thing, so I'm, I'm going to stretch it, I'm going to make it three. The second thing was very much the opportunities when I moved to the front desk to, um, to influence situations that led to very quickly being offered night manager and front office supervisor roles, again, about the ability to make a decision. And I'll qualify that say by the, the ability to take a decision. We make or take decisions. And I view take as being, I look at a situation, I look at the variables, and I come up with a solution that will hit the primary pillars. It's good for me. I can live with my decision tonight or tomorrow. It's good for the customer. It's good for the brand, be you an independent or, or a big ticket. 
and it's um, good for the guest fund, uh, good for the owners fundamentally. If the decision is that simple and it hits those four pillars, you got nothing to lose, and no one's going to really be able to fault you. I, I've kept those as um, foundational uh, parameters, if you wish, throughout my career, and I've used them a lot. Uh, with every layer of an organization, every layer of a person. So anyways, did well in that context. And then one day was given a project. And the project was, Joseph, we're launching a new, it was a uh, advent of new uh, front office um, PMS systems, moving from the NCR 4200s to some technology of the day. And uh, I still love the sound. Um, given a training program to say, you need to come together uh, pull all of the data together, pull all of the people affected together, project management, for lack of a better term, without being told it was going to be project management. I had so much fun putting this training program together, facilitating people understanding where we were to where we're going and getting them there. And it was the first time I received any feedback. I remember the general manager, George Lee Pooner, standing up at the end of the session and saying, that was really good. You're really good at this process of, tra of training people. And uh, I think it was only then that it clicked and said, yeah, that was kind of fun. That was probably one of the biggest turning points for me that led to, I like helping other people. I like setting other people up for success. To me, it's the number one role of any leader. You're fundamentally there not to block or barricade or interfere or create too many rules. You're there to set others up for success. And um, I, I just got a kick out of it. And I think it, it fueled me, it nourished me. Now, William, in, in context, all this after four years, I was still a young pup, hadn't done anything, hadn't traveled really much on my own and literally took a vacation after a long stretch, came back. Nobody had followed the guidelines I had laid out on my desk to take care of this and take care of that. The place was a bit of a zoo when I got back. I walked up to the swimming pool at the Bonaventure. If anyone knows it, it's an indoor-outdoor pool. I was wearing a beige three-peat suit with beautiful cowboy boots on. I dove into the swimming pool and I quit. I ruined my boots. It's the only thing I remember is ruining my boots. It's ruining your boots. It was the funniest thing. But I, I had had my, my uh, I, I had done as much as I could there. And it was like I have always been. It was on a lark and I enjoyed doing it. But it, uh, it was perfect timing. A few weeks later, I ended up working for Ward Air Canada and uh, joined an airline, saw the world, had an amazing time and fell back into a training role. Yeah, and that's that's when when you look on paper where your history goes, because, again, knowing the history, your history and, and having cross paths, your name comes up frequently with people I talk to about somebody who has been a key influencer on their life uh, as a trainer and as a mentor. And I know that you spend a lot of time as a trainer, um, regional um, director of training for Fairmont Hotels and Resorts, which happened after your time at Ward Air. And, and in, in Ward Air, you spent some time doing the supervisory training as well. But I'm always curious, well, where did this begin? And it always follow the rabbit down the hole, uh, if I may, and say, well, where did you get influenced by this? What was that turning moment for you? Because I often say to my students, you don't know what you don't know yet. So if somebody would have said to a young Joseph Klein, by the way, training is going to be of interest to you, and you're going to build your the back of your career on this. 
early on, you might have said, no. <laughs> what is that? I agree, William. Early on, I probably never, never would have crossed my mind. There is a, um, there is a, a connection, a small connection, I think. It goes back to um, when I was about 13, I joined, I joined the Army Cadets uh, here in Montreal and had a blast until I was about 17. Again, uh, great experiences, great colleagues, great friends. And as you move up the ranks, corporal, sergeant, warrant officer, chief warrant officer, there's a lot of training, training plans that you become responsible for, for the newer cadets. And it just seemed um, easy and the same thing, seemed fun. And it was great to see people succeed. When I think back over what happened at the, the Western Bonaventure, when I think back to how I moved into a more formal training at Ward Air, I, uh, I always reflect on these little pieces must have been part of it. I uh, had a great mentor. Um, I've had a couple. I've been fortunate. I've had a very strong mentor when I was with Ward Air, Keith. And Keith had a responsibility for all of the training within Ward Air, from technical to uh, supervisory to uh, reservations, et cetera. I was at my max as a flight attendant. I went out to see him for some counseling, if you wish. And he put me through a couple of exercises that helped identify what my natural satisfiers were. And I, I would uh, suggest to every single one of us, until we find out what really makes us tick, what it is that we don't even realize gives us the biggest rush in the space of a day or in our life, it'll be hard to find the best job. But he helped me uncover this, this role of sharing information, of uh, helping people see the big picture. There, there were some very nice macro dimensions that were identified that helped me realize, well, the kinds of things that allow that are things where you can identify need, you know, through a needs analysis or other, identify a solution to the need and find a vehicle to present that to a, a collection of individuals with very, very different backgrounds. I, I, I just found when, when he gave me the opportunity to stop flying and become responsible for supervisory training, it was just amazing. It, it just, it clicked. It, I can't tell you there's any one thing in particular other than the seeing somebody leave a room going, I learned something today, watching somebody's light go on in the middle of a training session saying, I get it. It makes sense. And I assure you, the my initial skill set was rather rudimentary and by the book, but it didn't take long to understand the need to be flexible with your course curriculum, to be flexible with the audience, um, play off on situational training versus situational leadership. And I I don't know. I, I uh, there, there was a, a general manager many years ago said to me, Joseph, it's the same stuff, just in a different book. And we were talking about we're standing in a in a in a bookstore and we're looking at these myriad of of leadership books. And he looks at the ones he's read. <clears throat> excuse me. I look at the ones I've read or some of the ones I read. And in the end, it's all the same stuff. It just has to be said in a fashion that works for you. We may believe we all hear, yeah, we all hear, but we all listen very differently. And, and until I hear the message in a way that connects to my view of the world, uh, it, it, it's not going to happen. And I liked seeing the happen. I liked seeing the click. I liked finding ways to make people say, I finally get it. And I, I equate it sometimes when you're, when you're dealing with people to, in training them and trying to convey skills or knowledge because 
if you do it in a way that's, I equate it to jazz because it, you do need to free form a little bit. It's the difference between playing the notes and playing the music with the people that you're interacting with. And, and with that live training, understanding that every now and again, you need to slightly change the tunes, change the pace to hit the rhythm that's working for the room at that particular moment to resonate, not to use that word again, but to resonate with them and make sure that they're getting what you're trying to, to share with them on any particular day or in any particular moment. Excellent analogy. Uh, the music sheets in front of you change the tempo, uh, change where you're going to start, change where you're going to finish. Um, it's still the same music and it has to be tweaked. It has to be played with. Absolutely. Um, you know, it, look, some people are, oh God, I don't want to open this, uh, this can of worms. Um, are you born a leader or do you become a leader? I'm not even going to touch it. I'm going to say to you, some people are far more comfortable helping others, reading others. Um, if you're comfortable with Myers-Briggs personality type indicators, you know, you've got the traditionalists, you've got the judicial, you've got the catalyst, and you've got the visionaries. Our industry is, our industry is so full of traditionalists. It's, uh, it's somewhat disconcerting compared to the general uh, population. And then throughout there are a few of the other dimensions. I fall into the catalyst dimension. And as a catalyst, you know, we're, we're defined or grouped in the natural facilitator role, the natural psychologist role. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a psychiatrist. But our, our demeanors or our views of the world make it easier for us to read an audience and or read a subject and or identify the common denominators that make the distribution or the delivery of the message that much more efficient or effective. I... Uh, I have had to alter my profile, not change who I am. I am who I am. That's never going to change. In the role I've had or the roles I've had in my career, I've had to ensure I add the dimensions that aren't natural to me to ensure I can make even better and better decisions with the people around me. So you pivot to Wardair and you're there for six years and, and move into and take on more and more responsibility in the training aspect. Now, Wardair at that time it would be considered a relatively, it would have been a small player within the airline industry. Um, and in the late eighties, small, and you correct me if I'm wrong, a, a little bit dynamic in constant flux and change. So what's it like to cut your teeth or earn your bones as a trainer in that type of world? I would not trade it for anything. It's an environment where the, the man, Max Ward, had a simple, simple message. If the tray table is dirty, the engine must be broken. And from the start of his business many, many years ago in Alberta, he was all about just, we need to do it right and we need to stick to that. And we need to do it right the first time. There is no second time. There are too many competitors. And it is a culture that was also about it doesn't matter what sticks are put into our wheels. We know that we can do this. We will do it right. It was an environment that was just perfect for me. There's this independence, this entrepreneurial principle, and that's difficult as an entity grows. Ward Air was the first class airline. Ward Air was everything that an airline should be. The vacation started as you checked in, and, and that was pretty much the, the expectation of years gone by. It was an airline that had taken on Air Canada many a time, taken on the government and fought its way through rules, regulations and interference 
and still stayed true to its mantra and, and its quality uh, experience. It was in full expansion mode when I joined the training department. One of my last projects was to create an updated corporate video that just showed that the future was ours. Part of my role was to, to travel the world and talk about our pillars. How are we with finances? Where, like we were very transparent as an entity. And I remember uh, doing a presentation in London uh, just before the company was sold. I think it's early 89. And um, saying to everybody at the England office, the London office, that things are good. We've got this kind of money for our next debt payment. And we've ordered this and we're doing that. Get back to uh, Toronto. And a couple of days later, the, the, the owner had announced that he had um, sold the company. I, I think it was the, it, there was a, a, there was a tangible, oh my God, this doesn't make sense from everyone who had fought for many years with him alongside of him to survive the challenges of the Canadian uh, air industry. Yet in, uh, in, upon reflection after the, after the grief and the sorrow, a smart move, a uh, very smart move on his part. Uh, maybe he had a crystal ball. The industry changed fundamentally within a year or year after and um, might have survived, but I think it went out on a super high. Yeah, very difficult time for the airline industry as well. Um, tight competition within Canada and then Canadian Airlines picks up Ward Air. But now that you express so well what the idea and the philosophy was driven by Max Ward and Ward Air, it's not surprising that you pivot over to Fairmont Hotels and Resorts, which was at the time Canadian Pacific Hotels and Resorts, which I always refer to as the Robert Damone era. Oh, absolutely. William, you, you pegged it spot on. CP Limited, still this immense entity looking to redefine its future. The hotel division chaired by uh, Robert Damone, an amazing individual. I, I had a lot of respect for him. Uh, the company says, uh, so um, if I go backwards in early 89, Ward Air goes on the market. So I started looking at the newspapers and looking for ads. And I came across an ad in, I want to say, April or May of uh, 1989 that said, manager of training, Canadian Pacific Hotels. And the first line was, if you like to travel. So in my head, I'm going, oh, yeah, airplanes. Yeah, sure. Around the world. Sounds like a great gig. It didn't say buy car through the Rocky Mountains of Alberta. Though that in itself, there's a whole other podcast about the Rocky Mountains, Alberta, and that whole training component, which was fascinating. CP Hotels correctly defined they needed to change their culture and revamp their culture. They hired, there was three of us, four of us across the country, each with a region, started up all at the same time, to go into a untouched environment, if you think about it. Every hotel used to be run by the GM, period and create a nationwide culture, commitment, dedication, focus, alignment to service and the respect of the people delivering it, which generates the respect of the people buying the experience. I, uh, the, the names that come to mind, Peter Watson, Peter Corliss, the, the people who followed us after the fact, we, we had this amazing opportunity and an amazing challenge to change culture and culture does not change overnight faced a lot of resistant individuals, but our job was to find a way to turn them around. And it, it was an amazing experience. 19, I think it was June of 89. And I think I stopped training in, uh, oh my God, 97. Stopped training in 97. Best time of my career. Yes. And I joined in 96 and was there till 98. 
So I was there for a short period of time and, and I didn't have that long of a tenure, but to this day, even though it, it says Fairmont Hotels and Resorts on my CV, because that's the, the, the formal name, I do tell people that I cut my teeth in one of the top hotels in the mountain region in the Damone philosophy, because that permeated any general manager, any director of operations in any of those, in any of the properties across Canada. It was a, it was a huge, small company. They shared the philosophy or they probably weren't there at the time. Correct. Because that, that philosophy permeated. And at the end of the day, you were either on the team or you, you were invited to go somewhere else to go because the fit wasn't there. And I think that that was so important. That was the first time that it was hammered home to me how important fit was. Correct. And it was okay that it doesn't work for you, but you just can't stick around here. It's okay if it doesn't work for you. If you can't find a role within this new vision direction, it's all right if you leave. We would rather you not keep doing what you don't like to do. Find out what you don't do well, don't do it. And if this environment is taxing you so much, life's too short, step away. I mean, it, it, it's a bit holistic. It, it's a reality. Folks, if the job isn't making you feel good when you wake up in the morning, you have got to move. We, we are a speck of dust in, in, in the timeline of this lovely planet. Don't, don't ruin the moment or don't, don't miss the opportunity. I, I think back to absolutely the CP is tattooed on one part of my body. The Fairmont is tattooed on another part of my body. And I've got a few other tattoos, but we won't talk about those. And I looked at, uh, I, I reflect upon the change we created from 89 into the early 90s, 95, 96, 97. Those leaders of that era, those leaders of today, I, I'll include Heather McCrory, who is North America's president for Fairmont today. I remember her in her initial role at Banff. I went through many a session with her as a participant and many other key players within the hierarchy of Fairmont today and Fairmont of the last 10, 15 years. There was an amazing sense of place and, and, and support for each other. It was a unique entity. The sale to become uh, a public company, the sale to become Fairmont or that, that expansion into the Fairmont and then becoming a global had an effect. You know, it, that, that beautiful company became another hotel company, very strong one. And it was difficult for some people to let go of the, we used to be a family. And I use that term loosely. You, you either loved it or you didn't. You're right. And the transition was different. It, it, was, a, it was a new culture. It was, it was changed. And, you know, the, the Fairmont of today and a core doing a wonderful job with what they're doing um, and, and the seeds are still there. But it was just a, it was a different, it was a different time. And, and I was so pleased that I got to be part of just a small bit of it because I do think that it had fundamentally changed my DNA yep. in how I approached. And I look at people like James Tingley, who probably doesn't know it and maybe will listen to this at some point in time and realize he had, had such a profound impact simply by coaching me the way that CP would coach people and, and have those learning moments. So then we get into this really small question. How do you build a powerful culture in hospitality? Really small question. Really small. Sarcasm is, uh, is a strength for you there. How do you build culture? 
Um, the, the important piece is culture is not an individual, though the root can be from an individual's vision or perspective. Culture is a multi-year experience. It's three, three to four years to change or slow down the process. It's four to five years to create the new direction. It's six to seven, maybe even eight years to really see the change is bringing, uh, you know, is bearing fruit. Changing a culture is, um, th there has to be a reason, there has to be a value, there has to be a destination. The destination has to be translated into benefits, advantages, value to the players involved in it. It has to be non-threatening. It has to be very, very transparent. It is the right thing to do. You, you have to come into, if you're a GM and you come into a new hotel, in essence, you're looking at the culture today. Either you're going to add to it or you're going to try to change it completely. You're going to grow from it or you're going to change it completely. And at times, I think uh, maybe because we're so heavy with traditionalists, a manager or a leader will come in and attempt to change a culture without really including the team that is there already. And uh, I use team, the term loosely as well. I, I would say to you that culture is has to be an inclusive process. It has to be uh, incredibly talked about all the time, a lot, in many different ways for people, repetition enhances learning, for people to see it, hear it from so many different angles that they at one point have no choice but to comfortably jump on board and see where it's going. The, the change of culture is um, addressing fear of the unknown. If you want to create a culture, one of the most exciting experiences I've ever had in my career, and I, and I think many will, will echo this, is the chance to open a hotel. When you start, Pierre Plamondon, uh, Canadian Pacific, Fairmont, uh, sorry, now Fairmont, Tremblant Hotel was probably one of the strongest examples. Tony Carey Bernard, Hotel McDonald the two of them, where we worked together, this is in my training years, in once the GM was announced, it was in building the team of leaders that would fit that GM, that would fit the destination this hotel was trying to create, and how within the design of getting this hotel up and ready to open, you create so much of an incredible bond with the people involved, so much of an incredible anticipation for the people involved, so much of a sense of place, of value, of worth, that's the easiest way to create a culture. When it, once it's there, enjoy it because it doesn't last forever. When new people come in, they don't have the same shared experiences. They don't understand why you're wearing that funky t-shirt. They don't understand why you're yelling those strange, uh, loud cries of, of, of uh, camaraderie. Creating a culture or altering a culture that already exists is the hardest thing. Yet if it's very low, meaning if it has not been inclusive, if it hasn't been transparent, if it hasn't been supportive, it's easier to make, to succeed, to make, to make your actions count. If you go into an environment where things have been ticking, ticking along great, if you're not careful, it'll fall apart all around you. You really have to be cautious as a leader when you walk into a successful environment. That's hard. You know, how do you make your place and not be continuously compared to the predecessor? And how do you adjust your behaviors to still make it yours, 
but over a period of time where it's uh, appreciated. When you're going in as a new leader into an environment that already has a culture, and you, you talked about being transparent, but this idea of fear and, and the fear of change, the fear could come from people saying, you don't understand who we are. You, you, haven't, you haven't seen us. You don't understand us. So let me throw a word at you, and that's Sawabona. That's your word. What did you do? Record every conversation we ever had? <laughs> what language is Sawabona? Uh, Northern provinces of Southern Africa, Natal. If you want to pull up an interesting book, uh, Fifth Discipline, Five Disciplines. Um, it's a great workbook from many, many years ago. So Sawabona is a life principle. Good one, William. Sawabona is, is a greeting and... Uh, <laughs> It, it's it, when you when you and I pass each other in the street, some people don't even look at each other. You know, if you pick a street in New York, Montreal, Toronto, you walk by somebody, a stranger, we barely look each other in the eye. Sometimes if we make eye contact, we nod. If it's your neighbor down the street that you've never spoken to, you still nod. You know, you wave the occasional time when you pass by in a car. The normal greeting of saying hi to some people is okay, and you get a you know, hi back. Dare you to say hi, how are you? Most people are very cautious. What happens if they answer you? I'm terrible. Thanks for asking. What do I do now? Yeah, the hi, how are you? Oh, I was just being polite. <laughs> I, you know, it's it's really going bad. I was just kidding. So it's this in Northern America, well, I guess in Western culture, we we have a, some opportunities to improve this connectivity as humans. Anyway, Sawabona, simply put, is hi. I see you. I see your value. Now I'm generalizing. It's not just, hi, how are you? It's, hi, I see you. I see you value. I recognize your existence. You're here for a reason. We're all here for a reason. doesn't matter what our station is in life. We have to respect that. Saubona, Ubuntu is the principle. Saubona is the greeting. Ubuntu. Ubuntu is the okay. principle. Saubona is, hi, I see you. I see your value. And it can be used as a greeting. Yep. And the response is, Sokona. I have been seen. I have been valued. I'm going to have to pull that off my shelf someplace at home and I'll, uh, I'll scan it off to you. So then how do you use, or how have you used Sawabona as a leader when you want to engage your team? This, this, um, as I, as I suggested a couple of minutes ago, everybody has a place. Everybody has a value. We're all on this planet for some reason. Yes, there's the power of evil and the power of good, but let's generalize, okay? Luke, you know, bear with us, Luke. The power is good, not evil. Saubona, or this acceptance that we are all important or you wouldn't be here, I think has probably been one of the fundamentals. I don't say it out loud. It's in my actions. In coming to this new position here, uh, and I'll uh, address some of the other comments you made a few moments ago, it's trying to under, identify and understand what was happening here, what were the good things, what were the bad things, what were the opportunities from the eyes of those who have lived it before I decide to make any decisions or actions or, or take root. And I've had quite a few, though our, our resources have been very limited, but I, I am now connected to the 25 employees that are working out of my 120, and we hope to keep growing that. And I, and I understand, not understand them, I, I can respectively say I know their names and I know something about them and I know something about the struggles they've had in the past here and the successes they had. And it's allowed me to maintain a connection. 
or create a sense of mutual respect, not a doubt about what are your motives or not. Respecting the individual, recognizing they have value is the most important thing. It, it's, 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 it gives me the power, information is power, it gives me the power to make better decisions that will address a alignment of our resources, alignment of the actions and directions so that we're shooting for a, a more common direction. I don't know if you, you've probably played with this a little bit, William. Personal power, positional power. Mm-hmm. You know, personal power, yours, mine, the next person, it's the sum of our life experiences. It's our ability to influence people. It's our sense of ownership and accountability. It's, it's our education. It's our highs and lows. It's our confidence in ourselves to act in situations, take control of situations at home, like at work. Positional power is something we borrow. I'm borrowing the title of general manager. I am occupying this positional role that has authority, yes, that has responsibility for the numbers, yes. It is more the skills versus the natural talents of personal power. When people are effective, they've taken the sum of who they are, their personal power, and they've done the most they can with the position that they would be given. When they leave, it's still a positive. And when they leave, they are richer because their personal power is gained from all the experience that they have there. Everything I do just makes it easier for me to tackle the next day. Everything I experience makes it easier for me to tackle the next day. It just adds to my personal power, allows me to get the most out of the job. I have. And that goes back to something that you said earlier when you were talking about your first time uh, working at the, uh, at the Bonaventure Hotel. And where you had the ability to make a decision and that comes, that would come from personal power, not positional power to make and take a decision. And I I think there's a whole nother podcast on the difference between making and taking a decision there, but to have the courage to make a decision based on a set of skills, knowledge, ability, decisions, value sets, um, and who you are serving. And I'm going to use that to pivot for a minute. Because I think in the world that you have moved through, I call it expansive leadership. So a lot of leaders will go through and say, what can I accomplish in my role? And others will come along and say, how do I expand the world that I'm visiting for a while? And then I'm moving on to the next. And not to put too fine a point on it, I think that your history shows an expansive leadership. There is a wake of people behind you that are better for having worked with you and hotels that are better for you having been there. So that expansive set of being in service. Let's go back to 2008, if I might. And I just want to read a quote here because it's from uh, uh, Raymond St. Pierre, who was the VP operations for Atlantic Hotels and Resorts. And he said something very, very nice about you. He said, Joseph has proven experienced in developing and maintaining a culture of empathetic and responsive service, working closely with the community and developing effective relationships with tourism partners. And it got me thinking How important is building a community to you 
and why should it be so important in the hospitality industry? Well, first off, uh, very kind of Raymond. He is once again my regional vice president here in Montreal. Um, symbiotic relationship between the two of us. I don't bug him much. He doesn't bug me much, which is awesome. Community, I, I've, I've heard, read, seen many an entity refer to sense of family is important in our company. I, I find that a bit limiting. To me, it's sense of community is important within any organization. And the community then, that term is far broader. So can we say that every employee that works for me will feel like they are part of a family? Probably not. Can we say that every family will feel the employer their, their parent or their sibling works for cares for them as family? I, I don't think so. We can do things that allow an individual to feel at peace and comfortable with who they are. We can create um, opportunities for them to feel like they have been able to contribute something larger than just their role. That might give them a sense of place. Businesses have to understand that first and foremost, as an employee in the role I have, if I'm valued, I feel comfortable. If I'm valued, not necessarily recognized publicly, just valued, I feel comfortable. And in being valued in the role I contribute to the broader success, that's going to help. The community means I'm going to start to feel good about representing my, my business outside of work. And in a city center, more so than maybe in a resort, I, uh, I think there's uh, far more employees who clock in and clock out, just the maturity of their positions, the maturity of the hotel, the years that have they've spent in the same function by choice and comfortably so and, and well uh, compensated, et cetera. There is less of a, I will come back after work to help in the community. Um, if I go into a resort setting, community means much more, but literally you live next door or literally you're connected to the next employee who's connected to the next leader, to the supplier. And that sense of community and or contribution with each other is far, far more real. Community in, in hospitality has to be about within what are we doing to keep people engaged in appreciating they are doing something positive for the business and for themselves. It's about creating opportunities where we can be seen within our local community. We can be recognized within the hospitality community. We can be to some degree appreciated in the larger family community, not because we're boasting, but simply our actions show that we care, that we didn't throw away what we didn't have to throw away. We recycled it. We found a charity, but we didn't boast that. We don't have to boast it. It's just in the actions we take, we ensure that they are good for whomever might be affected by it. Community is the decisions you take, the decisions you make are broad enough that they'll answer more than just one pillar. And if we keep spreading the, the right kind of decisions, I think osmosis kicks in and you start to build that, that sense of community, that sense of, I'm proud to be there. And not everybody can say that these days. They're proud of their history. When you talk about tenure, they're proud of the years of service. They, that's a badge of honor that needs to be respected. They have all the answers to all the questions. They've seen all the nooks and crannies. They know where everything's hitting. They know where the dead bodies are, let alone that last banquet table that I can't find. But are they as proud of the property today 
or are they still thinking about yesterday or the day before? Good environments create a sense of community that allows them to be as proud today as they were in the heyday of an enterprise. When somebody checks into your hotel, the, the, the prevalent attitude is always, how can I help you? How can I take what you're bringing to me and make your life better? How do I give you a better sleep? How do I give you a better meal? How do I take some of your pressure away? And those are the signs of a good hotel. And I bring up the idea of community because I know intentionally over the last, over your tenure as general manager, you have demonstrated the value of giving back. When I talk again to my students about lifelong learning and integration and being involved, I always say you can spend four years in a program, two years in a program, you can go through leadership training and whatnot, and you can do the work, but then you're just like everybody else. What else have you done to be involved? And your history is a series of board of director positions in, in whatever region that you've landed in. So when you were in St. Andrews, you're on the board of directors of Kingsbury. When you were at Deerhurst, you were at Muskoka Tourism. You worked with provincial organizations versus national organizations. Um, and then you, you worked for the CTC, the Canadian Tourism Commission, on U.S. relations, but it was that relationship building, and then now back in Montreal with the Hotel Association of Greater uh, Montreal, is that idea of community and giving back beyond your front doors uh, of the hotel. When I look at the broader community, when we talk uh, industry, if there is, uh, and I am, I'm experiencing that again now on the board of directors for um, the Hotel Association here in Montreal. And it's a, an incredibly difficult time to be in, in this industry. So it, it does need a lot of how do we work together? I, I have found there's, there's a blend, you know, active board members first, they all get credit for committing time and, and, and energy and their, their personal power to the good of, uh, of others. It's not always easy for board members to think beyond their personal needs, their hotel or their, their whatever piece of the industry that they're part of. I, I feel that throughout my participation in, in different board activities, I'd rather make a decision better for everybody, even if it cost the business I represented something, or even if we had to give something away. Because in the end, it's the sum of the parts that's far more important than just my little piece of the pie or the next person's piece of the pie. And I think effective boards are boards that are able to see we're, we're, we're not that the competition cooperation paradox. So, you, you know, to, to compete is brilliant if we're competing outwards. When we start to compete internally, so big cities suffer from that quite often. Unless the associations are really, really strong and, and or the relationships are strong, big city centers, hotels tend to compete against each other. It's a rate war. It's a it's a service war. It's a stop. Every single one of your properties is unique, is different. Your brand is unique, is different. Your service is unique, is different. Your person are unique and different. We should be competing externally with the other cities, not with each other. Yeah, not, not your hotel, but how does Montreal succeed? How does Toronto succeed? Um, and and once, once everybody is succeeding, the rising tide raises all ships. A hundred percent. And so when I, when I think of the role outside of the hotel and community, is to do anything I can to help influence the tide, not the boat, the whole tide. You know, folks, how do we raise it all? And if we can't see past that, and if we can't accept that, you know, sometimes that's not easy, sometimes that's painful, it still has a positive on the other end. Six months into the hospitality industry, you said you fell in love. 
What can we do today to get people to fall in love with our industry? William, that's a big question. Today, in, in my position, I'm struggling to find an entry-level leader that I won't call a supervisor. I am drawing a much broader, more exciting, more all-inclusive opportunity within our property. We, we've hired one great young lady, and I'm looking for at least one more right now, if not two, that won't be limited by parameters of one division or the other, that won't be limited by layers of, of hierarchy. Look, we've like everybody, we've streamlined to the bare minimum, and I don't want to see our hierarchy rebuild uh, the way it used to be. We're foundational. So there's me, there's a couple of others, and our job is to support everybody else in getting it done. But to find someone who is as keen as what we might have described 10, 20 years ago is not as easy. Today, I am... I feel for the graduates, the students, the younger crowd looking for a place to be, what's important? Is it stability? Uh, Definitely hearing a lot of, I need a guarantee. Is it um, responsibility, authority, title? Is it dollars and cents? They're all important. None none of them always the same for each person. I think there is a, a bit of risk adversity from some of the people who are now ready to take on roles of responsibility with different hotels. And I, uh, I, I say that uh, on one side saying, I think they're being very picky and that's good, finicky and, and the right choice. On the other side, there is still, it's all about image and brand, which would be the best brand for me, which would be the best image for me. And I appreciate that. There's still a bit of a, I, I think, a um, not an obstacle, maybe an unknown. What's the difference between a franchise operation, a managed operation, an independent operation? And I think the most successful individuals or the most ambitious individuals would be surprised at how much better they would do in a franchise or independent setting than they may in a more structured uh, big brand. Love big brand, work with them. I get it. I, I understand it and its structures and its consistency and its standards, et cetera, et cetera. The flexibility or the independence that an independent operation or a franchise operation offer is far more rewarding. And I I fell into franchise businesses when I moved to Deerhurst. That was a big move from 16 years with a big brand. And I, I love it. It is far more about us being able to do what we might think is right, taking risks, throwing it away if it didn't work, starting again. So how do I get that sense of excitement to this younger crowd? It's, uh, I don't think I have an answer yet. I, this morning, before, uh, before our call, um, there was definitely, I, I, I'm in conversation with someone who is hesitant about an offer we made them to join our leadership team. And I'm doing everything I can to win them over without pouring it on, you know, without trying to, uh, sound too gushy. It's about drawing a picture that allows them to make the best decision for themselves. In the end, candidates like employers have to make the choice. It's not one or the other. And a candidate or or that potential person has to be really comfortable. Is the grass greener on the other side? No, it's not. It's a totally different shade of green. Some for the better, some for the worse. But it's a totally different shade of green. 
and you don't know until you try. Finding that uh, that miracle mix, I, I'm working within our management company right now, uh, a few of us on how do we address this, this lack of staff? How do we address this fearful employee in terms of coming back into the workplace? How do we address this less confident workforce than ever before? On top of this now mature aged workforce that is sitting at home or has been for 18 months and is now suddenly saying, I never thought I'd retire this early, but we're going to lose an important part of our service culture, our pure and simple workforce, our knowledgeable experts, because they're at a point where they realize, you know what, maybe life is indeed too short and maybe I don't need to work until I'm 70. And that, I, that I'm sorry, I understand it. If I could retire tomorrow, I'd probably retire tomorrow and do podcasts. Just kidding. I understand it. I fear it. As an employer, I fear the loss of this incredible amount of talent because times have changed. And on the other side, I have this somewhat cautious amount of talent soon to be developed. And in the middle, I'm, wow, how do I make it fit? I don't have an answer yet. We're trying to navigate during very rocky waters right now. And even when the waters were smooth pre-COVID, it was hard enough when we had our labor shortage of, of one in 10. And, and now the labor shortage is, is immense. And I don't envy operators in general in, in their ability to attract and retain workers and what workers are going through right now with risk aversion and fear and uncertainty. None of those are conducive to jumping into a new adventure uh, and, and maybe a non nine to five Monday to Friday job. I've seen some very good talent, William, um, even a few positions here when I took over, couldn't pull them back right away. And in the end, they've changed industries. They will admit that the change was good for their lifestyle, but is not rewarding. It is not, it, it, this is not an industry for everybody. It, when you get into it, if you've got the right, if, 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 if the makeup is there, what a blast this industry is. What an utter blast. What would be the one piece of advice you would give to somebody starting out in the industry? Carpe diem. Seize the day. Don't wait. You're going to have more than enough time to jump to a different entity, jump to a different hotel company, jump to another position. The, the, the days of five, 10 years in one position don't exist anymore. Take the first thing that comes to your mind or, or comes to you and is a good, fair offer that allows you at least a good 12 months of learning something you didn't have yesterday, of proving yourself. If you love it, you'll stay a little longer. If it doesn't work for you, you leave richer for it, but don't wait. Now's not the time to wait. Now's the time to grab it and have fun with it because now businesses that are going to be successful will be far more flexible. One side of me hopes that all of my colleagues understand the need to be different in how we lead tomorrow. The other side of me is I hope they learn that after I've hired everybody I need. Listen, William, the, the industry is not, you know, as I said, uh, if you're looking for a sedate environment where nobody bothers you and everything's predictable, please don't. If you're looking for something that's just fun and unpredictable, you'll enjoy it. I really, really do appreciate the the amount of time that you gave me today. Um, and, and I think that the comments that you've provided are going to be very valuable to the students and the young leaders that this project is directed towards. So I appreciate that. You take care of yourself. I absolutely will. Bye for now. Be well.
Now, if you enjoyed this episode of the Service Center, be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you can see when new guests drop into the Service Center. It can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and many more. The Service Center was created and produced by me, William Murray. I would love to hear from you about the show, including what you're enjoying, who you might like as an upcoming guest, or just a burning question you'd like answered. So go ahead, leave me a comment, connect with me on Twitter or LinkedIn, or just go old school and send me an email. Thank you for choosing to spend your time here. I look forward to welcoming you back to the next episode of the Service Center.